the state of American music. These are the stories of the music that emanates from all corners of the great state of Tennessee. Easily the most musical place on the planet. The forgotten, the famous, the curious regardless of genre, era, or styles. From the banks of the muddy Mississippi, stopping on Beale, past Music Row, through Lower Broadway, and up in the hills and getting down in the holler. So raise a glass of sippin' whiskey and take a ride with us and explore the music from the stages and studios in the world's greatest local music scene. This is the music made of by and in Tennessee on this episode of Journeyman. So another famous story, Casey Wood and I got to hang out for like two days, three days with uh, Winona Ryder at, at the studio. I don't remember that. I didn't. You weren't there? No. What oh, was this? I was there. I was there. What was I she was, doing? She was- Oh, she's dating Ryan Adams. Dating, well, I, yes, she was dating Ryan Adams. And Ryan Adams was there working Poor on- Poor girl. Right. Oh my God. And like- that wasn't during Heartbreakers. That was the one he did after that, right? It was he did the a, Demolition record. Yeah, Demolition. Yeah, record. which only had like three or four songs from Woodland. From Woodland on it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I forgot. That's where she recorded that there. Yeah. I wasn't on that session, but that's where I do remember seeing her there. Yeah. And like she called the studio one time, and obviously I knew who it was. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> I love you, Ryan Adams. I actually do think you're a brilliant artist. You're kind of a a dick in the studio, but I get that. Uh, so he was supposed to, you know, like downbeat was like whatever, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, like a reasonable-ish time. And he wouldn't show up <laughs> for like 14 hours. <laughs> yeah, if he was there by four o'clock, it was a good start. Right, yeah, yeah. And so I uh, phone call one time. Hey, you know, it's Michael Woodland. Hey, can I speak with Ryan? I was like, who is it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Winona. <laughs> Yeah, I knew. Okay, let me go see if he's here. <laughs> yeah. I remember that, and I'll be like, "No, he's not here." Can I take a message? Yeah. Well, let me let me let me tell you another great Michael answering the phone story. So we were making a record on Robert Cray. He came in for for almost a month, pretty yeah. much the month of November. And there was one night where Michael, for whatever reason, you were on the session before. Whatever reason, you were sitting at the front desk that night. It was a break. It was a break. Okay. So Steve Jordan, a producer, um. Michael's sitting at the front desk and the phone rings. Pause. Steve Jordan, who now is the band leader for John Mayer. Famous okay. drummer. Played yeah. on like the Blues Brothers stuff. Yeah. Um, Michael answers the phone and this guy, and, and he says, hey, this is, uh, this is Bootsy Collins. And Michael says, no, it's not. And he hangs up on him. <laughs> right? And then about 10 minutes later, Steve Jordan comes out and says, <laughs> Man, I'm expecting a call from Bootsy Collins. Um, has he called yet? <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> he thought it was a guy prank phone calling the, stu the studio. <laughs> I was so stoked later when he called back. <laughs> yeah, thank thankfully. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was like, oh. It's before text messaging. We'd be like, dude, I tried calling the studio. What the fuck? So like, for like two years afterwards, I was like, I talked to Bootsy Collins on the phone. <laughs> yeah, just, I hung up on Bootsy Collins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's okay I had a friend that worked at a studio in New York and she was answering the phones one night and it was when Lisa Lisa remember Lisa Lisa Colcham yeah, of course they were in there recording and she was working on the front desk and someone called to talk to I guess her name's Lisa and uh, she goes in the, she puts the person on hold and she walks in the control room and says Lisa Lisa you you have have a, a phone phone call call and they fired her that night <laughs> oh. oh that's brilliant <laughs> <laughs> worth it yeah worth it 
That's good. All right. Uh, before we get back to our story, because we just took a quick break to get more Tennessee sipping whiskey, uh, Casey went to his archives deep in the Insanary archives, and he found two things. One, uh, Jeffers Henchman <laughs> featuring uh, a couple of random dudes, and Casey Wood recorded in Wausau, oh, uh, University of uh, Wisconsin, Oshkosh, recorded by Casey Wood. Yeah. This is before he won his Grammys. Uh, so, I mean, I guess, like, from a historical perspective, it would matter if there wasn't 10,000 fucking copies. <laughs> <laughs> They're not worth something. <laughs> like, if there was, like, 10 of them, it might be worth something. Should, what you need to do is you need to print 9,000 stickers that says featuring Grammy Award winner <laughs> Casey Wood. <laughs> Maybe Phonolux can give there. me my own, my own kiosk at Phonolux. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to send this over, pa- pass this one over to Seth so he can see it. But I think even better is the Manny Pacquiao record. I'm going to go look for this on the internet. <laughs> it's like one of these gatefold CD uh, packages, and it's just... It's a lot of packaging for one song. Sometimes when we touch, Manny Pacquiao sings featuring Dan Hill. A two-disc set. <laughs> CD plus bonus DVD. Oh, yeah, there's a DVD of the this recording session. With the shittiest picture of Manny Pacquiao, like, with headphones on. I mean, it's so grainy. It, like, I don't know who put the out-of-control limit. If you're out there and you're killing it, we want you on the show. Uh, this is actually, what's, I'm fascinated by this. What's the photo on the back? It's Manny, and I guess that must be uh, Mr. Hill. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so CD contents, there's seven tracks each one of them are Sometimes When We Touch, <laughs> track one, Manny Pacquiao with Dan Hill, Sometimes When We Touch, instrumental for karaoke, and then like five remixes <laughs> produced by Matthew McCauley and Fred Mullen. Okay. DVD content, which is an inside look at Manny and his music with interviews and the sessions. And Dan, I'm sure, Casey, you are on this somewhere. Uh, video directed, produced, and then recorded and mixed by a guy named D Teenage Dave Smalley. Dave, Dave Sally. Dave Sally. Uh, with additional recording by Casey Wood, Capitol Records, Hollywood, California. <laughs> Heck yeah. See, I didn't make that shit up. No, you didn't. I don't know why in the intervening nine years... You never just told me, hey, I just did this. Like, we talk about shit all the time. Like, hey, what are you working on? You doing anything fun this week? Blah, blah, blah. Manny Pacquiao, if you want to come on the show and uh, relive this. Yeah, right. What is probably one of the greatest memories of your life. No, undoubtedly, clearly. <laughs> he had an entourage of about 20 girls that did nothing but take selfies the whole time. Like, we, we were recording and they want, you know, they would just be standing there on the side of the control room clicking their phones the whole time. It was so annoying. They did nothing. But except to give him inspirato to sing to. Were they hot? <laughs> they, I don't remember. Were they honestly. Filipinas? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Filipinos. His manager was there. He was like wearing boxing shorts. It was really weird. It was cool. <laughs> For the sake of brevity, I have so many questions that we will discuss not live in studio. When we do Journeyman LA stories, yeah, yeah, we'll right. get to that one. Right, right, right. Journeyman yeah. Filipino edition. <laughs> Seth, what do you think? Pretty sweet, huh? Almost unbelievable. Almost that, that, that I've even held this in my hand. This uh, this Manny Pacquiao record here. If if you hadn't touched it, sometimes I don't know. when you touch the CD, if I saw a photo of that on the internet, I would think it was fake. <laughs> Photoshopped like fake. I feel like I could send people that photo and they would be like bullshit. We're gonna That's put this up on the website. Real. So I. <clears throat> 
totally unplanned. This is a gigantic tangent. We're going to listen to an excerpt of this song. Can we, can we play this real quick? You want to hear me? I'm dying. We've been talking about All it right. for 20 goddamn minutes. All right. your best work, Casey. <laughs> hey, it sounds fine. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you. That took a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sure it did. <laughs> All I did was record the vocal. <clears throat> that was an auto-tune. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a lot. You of do that. a lot of takes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, when you fly all the way to L.A., Get on you're only so you recording can... a vocal on one song. You might as well record a lot of takes. Yeah. Nothing else. You're going to have some serious insurance policies. So, <laughs> you're crying. I am crying. Sit down. <laughs> so, like, we got to talk about that. I want to make sure. That, uh, <laughs> we've derailed this. No, whole... we've derailed. So, but this is just so <laughs> good for so many reasons. Uh, why did you have to book like one of the most famous expensive studios in the like why could you not just like book a generic I don't movie? remember I didn't do it I mean I literally got called to just hey we're, we're recording in LA I think he was doing a I think he was in LA to fu- to do a fight and we caught him like two or three days out in front of it <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it was was the original recorded at Capitol no that was done in Canada I think it was done at Mantra, Mantra, Man- Manta, Manta in Toronto. Okay. Dan Hill's a Canadian artist. The original artist was Canadian. So, I'm, man, I don't know. Uh, did, did you get a call? They say, can you, we'll buy you a plane ticket. Can you fly out to LA and do this? It's only going to take us three hours, you know. So, <laughs> fine. Yeah, I'll go. But you're telling me so much more. Like, the more you talk about this, the more color commentary, the more bizarre it comes because let's say that it's before a fight and he's in California from the Philippines. He's training, like he's in fight mode, right? Like, you know, he's like cut. He's been training all day long. He's been dieting. He's flown over. He's got jet lag, right? Yeah. And so they decide to go cut, you know, an afternoon's worth of takes on his favorite song at Capitol Records. Like that makes it even weirder. Like Mm -hmm. I could see like, I guess you couldn't do it after the fight. No, you, if you up. Just, yeah, if you got punched in the face, your vocals are done for a, a while. But you would think maybe he, like his manager would be like, I don't know, like <clears throat> by that time he's basically his own conglomerate, like enterprise. There, right? Like, he's, yeah, he's running multiple career streams. <laughs> right. Of, this like, was like right as he was about <clears throat> to run for some sort of political office in the Philippines. Yeah. So if nothing else, he's looking at it going. The kids in the Philippines are gonna love this shit. I mean, you know, this is a this is a. If it might have been a political ploy of him to get. I mean, he's a hero over there to yeah. begin with. I mean, he yeah, was yeah. like the lightweight champion of the world for like what seven years in a row, mm-hmm. yeah. or something like that. He's an amazing boxer. Yeah, obviously. He's, I mean, a gifted athlete. I I think the bigger issue is is that if this was you or I, or any of us, and like <clears throat> you were talented to that degree with that level of success. Notoriety, uh, the like you're a machine and you're able to do whatever you want. I don't know. It's like the rough equivalent of like me calling up Paul McCartney and being like, "Hey, man, you want to go sing yesterday?" <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's 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 do. Oh, you know what? I'm gonna go do that. I'm gonna spend an afternoon and fly wherever I need to be. And Paul's gonna come in, and we're gonna sing Beatles songs. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> wouldn't you do it, Dan Hill? I just equated you to Paul McCartney because you're one really great song. Okay, back to Tennessee. All right, new chapter. <clears throat> this is Exit Dave Mattis. So it's interesting to see the guys that are sort of helping direct the career of Johnny Ace at this point, right? So we have David James Mattis from Memphis, and then we've got Don Roby out of Houston, right? And they actually sort of mirror each other in this negative photograph sort of way, right? Um, Don is this strong-willed, he's sharp-dressed, he's a black man from Texas. He doesn't seem, at least initially, to have a lot of regard for music beyond the income that could produce, where Mattis is this white man from Memphis. He seems to be pretty passionate about the music, wants to protect the artist, doesn't want to seem to exploit them, tries to go out of his way to seem and, and be considerate of their needs, both personally and professionally. Uh, and he's trying to be very earnest and seems to be trying to play very fair. They're both relative novices. I would I would say in some regards, they might be relatively even. You know, if you're running a club and you have a booking agency, you've got a fair amount of clout and you've had some success, right? But by that same token, Mattis is on air in Memphis in the 1950s, uh, you know, spinning some of the, like, the most important things in the world. And this is a point when DJs actually really mattered and they right. were just robots, right? <clears throat> and so <clears throat> I, I, I've had a tendency to sort of paint them all as amateurish through this point. And that might be a little bit more uh, unfair than it needs to be because they do have a, a fair amount of music experience, but not necessarily the artist development and our label producer uh, bit. Fair? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this is where things get a little bit murky. And we actually have sort of two Duke records that are split between Texas and Tennessee. And for those that don't know, Texas and Tennessee have this sort of pipeline sibling rivalry thing uh, from a music perspective uh, that is much more real than I I wouldn't have realized until I moved to Tennessee. And I also spent a lot of time in in Texas as well for uh, other reasons. And so it's like there's this direct pipeline between the two states, right? So months after forming Duke, developing Johnny Ace, Mattis had to sell his label, and with it he had to sell Johnny Ace's contract or any sort of idea that he had to it. So my song had been released to limited success. So Roby hears this song and says, that's it. That's my next artist. That's my hit. I'm going to do this. Now remember, we just heard my song. Good, not great. I would say just at the basis that we've heard of Gatemouth Brown, that he seemed to be way better from a development standpoint at this point than, than Johnny was. But in a historical standpoint, this is a, Johnny Ace's sound is relatively new. Uh, I would think. You would think? I, 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 that's a good question. I, don't I know. think he's probably more interested in the sound of Johnny Ace and this kind of encompasses it than he is in specifically the song, My Song. Maybe. Well, we, and we talked about the crossover appeal of Johnny Ace. I mean, was Roby aware of that kind of thing? Was he was he trying to sell this to the white audience as well, or did? No, I, I don't think so at that point. Okay. No, it, I think that they would be too small, unless he was this gigantic thinker. He may have, but I, I think that he was probably just said, "That's it. That's the hit." Right. Right. Which is interesting to think about. You know, we're not giving Roby any credit for anything music related, really, but he he's basically going to hit. 
you know, hit the lottery twice, right? With, twice in a row. Yeah. Lightning in a bottle. And this is a guy that was booking Basie, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, A-list huge guys, which 500 years from now, like students of music will study, yeah. right? So it's not like he wasn't immediately affected both business and you know, mm -hmm. conceptually for what great black music was. But now right? think about it though. That's what he's listening to, right? And even Gay Mouth Brown has elements of that. And then a guy like Johnny Ace comes along, he hears this recording and it's like teeny bopper music that, but no one knows what teeny bopper music is yet. And I don't know that he's probably smart enough at this point to equate that this is what the kids are going to listen to, but it's different and he likes it. Roby's got an ear. He has to have an ear, you know. He has to, right? Yeah. Right, right, right. And so, you know, that that my point that I was trying to make earlier was is that it's easy to make him out to be the villain, but clearly, and you'll see, he actually is hugely responsible for what we know about Johnny Ace at all. And so that's really big. So at this point, and we'll introduce the sort of ramp up to this later. So he, uh, Roby had been working with Johnny Otis and he says to Johnny Otis, once he hears my song by Johnny Ace, he says, that's it. I'm going to buy this record and I'm going to put it out. Boom. That's it. Like definitive. So Duke is sold. Mattis sort of gets that, that albatross off his neck. And there was sort of like a loose agreement that it was business partner, that there was an option for a partnership on there. Mattis thought he was still in the circle, but at this time he seems both functionally and sort of business-wise being pushed further and further away from both Duke as a label, the tracks, the concepts, the ideas, what his original vision was, and most specifically Johnny as like the artist, right? So Roby, to, to Seth's point earlier, essentially is running two parallel labels with little distinction in the direction between the two. They try at a later point in time to distinct them where Peacock is going to be sort of the more upscale, if not gospel, but more respectable, upper middle class, black music, right? Where then uh, the Duke was going to be more teeny bopper, more mass appeal, more younger audience, right? That was, it doesn't always stick to that and where those delineations get crossed aren't clear and or why. But that was initially what the idea was. So with all the scratch that, that Don Ruby's been making at the time, Peacock goes out and decides to start pushing to the rag. So they're pushing to Billboard, Cashbox, all these magazines. They took out a ton of ads. And within one week of the new Duke record slash Peacock conglomerate pushing this record out, my song was a hit. One week. One week. Oh, this guy's a bigger genius than we thought. No shit. Yeah. I mean, is it, I don't have any context in like, were other people pushing records like that at this time? I mean, were people putting money behind the advertising and then really pushing it, you know? Because I mean, it's, the promotion makes it a hit. Right. It almost seems like it wouldn't have mattered what song he picked to do this with. But it, it helps that Mattis this whole time has been playing it on the radio, right? Uh, because well, he wrote so, it. That's a great point. So there is already a test bed of regional hits, right? And what that difference between, okay, <clears throat> Memphis, Birmingham, Little Rock, Nashville, Louisville, whatever the immediate area that maybe Mattis had effect to. Okay, well, so then you've got that bit, and then if they turn around X amount of weeks later and then push this record out mm -hmm. now, but that's a great point, Casey. I didn't think about it because essentially Billboard was a conglomerate of regional sort of uh, jukebox and, and spin plays, so it already had that right. 
It wasn't CERN on a back foot. That's a great point. So hit within a week. Top 10 Billboard R&B hit. Now we know term R&B still kind of hadn't been invented. We'll talk about that later, but in that sort of genre, whatever they call it at the time. According to one source, before the street date, and I can't find this to even be remotely true, it sold 53,000 copies. Yeah, if a band does that today, I mean, they're wildly successful. Right? Yeah. Well, my band sold 10,000 copies of a CD. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter who bought them. (laughs) (laughs) We all know of artists whose dads bought (laughs) copies just to, you know, I mean, what is is 53,000? They're just... Someone pressed up 53,000 copies. It, it they ended up somewhere. To disc makers. <laughs> uh, that, that's where we are. So big hit, right? So Mattis is back in Memphis. He's still on the air. He's still spinning records. He's still, I'm going to put this in quotation marks, writing songs because we know that he clearly just rips off songs before. He's working with bands, and he's recording. Now, I don't know if he's working with the remnant of the Beale Streeters at this point, because Riley King is now B.B. King. He's working with Aladdin. He's out on tour. Johnny is sort of doing this whole thing and the rest of the band. But he's out there, and he's working. But Roby says, hey, I'm going to move all future tracking to another studio. There's this guy named Bill Halford, and he has a studio in Houston. It's called ACA, which I think the name was... um, American Recording Audio Corporation of America, whatever it was. It was like the most generic name for recording studio. It was definitely not the Insanery <laughs> out of Nashville. So back, back to Johnny. So now they've got a hit, right? So they've got a hit. They've pre-sold 50,000 units, essentially, maybe. Though they've got a lot of scratch and they're putting a lot of effort in it for a Roby perspective, it's still not major label. It's not Capitol Records. It's not RCA. It's not, right? So they still actually are pretty limited in their capacity to work through the system. Not nearly as limited Mattis, who was selling records and didn't have the ability to collect on it, right? At least Roby had the ability to collect and get paid, Mm -hmm. which is a big step in the right direction, right? This is what gets me in a, in a really weird way. So this is the time of like super heavy, very rabid cover versions of songs. A song would hit, people would be like, that's a song, we're gonna go do this. And then it was regional. Okay, it might hit in Cincinnati, but it didn't play in Detroit. Or it might hit in LA, but it didn't play in Phoenix. Or for whatever, well, because the DJs, payola and, and just regionalism. So everyone was going out there to record their own cover versions of these songs. So they said, I want a piece of that. And oftentimes there was confusion because it was like days or weeks. Now we know about answer songs. Mm -hmm. So answer songs, a lot of people may not know, uh, like somebody would write a song like uh, My Girl, which is a fantastic song. And then a couple of weeks later, another band would write a song called My Guy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an answer to whatever the original hit was with the idea that they're going to sort of play. And we'll see some examples of answer songs in the Johnny Ace story, but this is mostly focusing on this idea of, hey, we're going to take this song that they wrote and we're going to make our version of it with little to no recourse to be able to stop it. And so they're essentially just taking and saying, I'm going to go. Remember that country version? I'm going back to Aerosmith for the second time in this series. But remember they sang a country version of the Aerosmith song and they're like, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Mm. This song came out last month, different markets, whatever. But this is like, they're trying to ape the same market. They're trying to like, like bump into it. Especially problematic for a small indie that didn't have a lot of 
capacity didn't have promo men. There weren't people in these different markets out there talking to DJs, talking to the press, doing all these things. Uh, some markets, the original Johnny Ace version, the original of my song didn't break immediately. So let's say that there's 40 major metros in the country, right? He didn't break in all 40 of them. Uh, but the cover version, which came shortly thereafter, broke first. And then as the machine sort of works through and get a couple of weeks later, people heard Johnny's version and thought it was the cover. Mm -hmm. So in half the markets in the entire country, Johnny is the guy, right? And everybody knows and the fans know and the DJs know and the companies know. And, and, and then they hear the covers and they're like, well, oh, that's nice too. Yeah. But then the other one's at the inverse and he's just some tag along and nobody knows about. So we are going to go uh, listen to an excerpt of a cover of my song by a woman named Marie Adams. So the thing about people hearing these covers is they had no idea it was a cover. Mm -hmm. The first time they heard it, they mm -hmm. thought they were hearing the original artist. Yeah, exactly. And it didn't correct. really matter. I mean, I guess Duke Records, Roby's getting paid no matter what, right? They're licensing these songs to do these covers? Well, that's the thing. I don't know about the business standpoint. I don't think they would actually be licensing it. Whoever wrote the song, which we know to be... Mattis. Mattis and Ace at this point, at least, and I'm using the term wrote loosely, uh, they would have gotten that money through royalties. Publishing. Through publishing royalties, but not through mechanicals. So the mecha so let's just pause because we've talked about this a lot through this to make it perfectly clear. So in the industry, uh, there's a number of different ways that people get paid. Uh, there's mechanical royalties and there's publishing royalties. Okay, And those are two vastly different things in case you want to pick it up because... Your your household knows a lot about this. Well, the mechanical royalties are the are the uh, the royalties for playing the mechanical recording, right? So the artist would get a mechanical recording, the person who recorded it, and the publisher. The Pause publisher. for every record that sold x amount of cents per song or per record is a mechanical. So if a mm -hmm. million records are sold, the mechanical royalties is a dollar or a percentage amount that then gets pushed to the person that wrote those songs. Right. And then the publishing royalty is the royalty that basically goes to the songwriter and his publisher, his or her publisher, that's also based off of record sales because if you wrote a song but someone else recorded it, you get a royalty off of that. But it's also a royalty stream from radio play. Radio play as well. And, and television and any other usage. Yeah, any other play. That's why if you have a jukebox in the corner, you have to pay ASCAP and BMI because that money that you pay is somehow sent into, and now every time Johnny Ace's My Song gets played on a jukebox in 1950X, then he gets a certain percentage based off of that weighting, right? So it's essentially the two main ways in which people write. And so to that point is, is that if you uh, sing the song when you record, like Marie Adams did, uh, my song, if it's being properly recorded through the songwriter, through the publishing, then Johnny and Mattis would be getting paid, 
right? This becomes really important later in this next bit, uh, but they don't get any of those mechanicals and they're capitalizing on that would have been industry standard. We learned essentially two cents per song, you know, and if you sell a couple thousand copies, you spend an hour in the studio, you belted it out. Now you made a couple thousand dollars life as well. But to Seth's point, nobody knows. You hear the song on the radio and you're just a kid. You're like, oh, I like that song. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, you hear Johnny's song and you're like, oh, I, just, I just heard that one. It's, it's not as good. Sounds like it was recorded in the YMCA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is what's interesting because in the whole songwriting perspective, the borrowing of the original song, remember we talked about this last time, uh, it was the song So Long in which... Johnny was sitting there in the studio killing time with the Beale Streeters and he takes the form and the chord changes uh, and, and Mattis comes up with some lyrics and in 15 minutes they knock it out and they say, hey, we just wrote a song. Well, Downbeat Magazine actually picks up on this. Like, so they listen to enough records and they're obviously musicians and they're smart enough and they notice the melodic and the harmonic similarities to this original so long to my song. I mean, just syllab- syllabically, like it's the same, right? So makes perfect sense because it's exactly what happened. They ripped it off. So the magazine then goes on to mention all the people that uh, had covered so long that had hits, right? And they're like essentially calling out Johnny Ace. Then they went up to print up a sign. I guess it was like a sign in Madison Square Garden or someplace in Times Square or something like that. Uh, And they had all the people who covered Johnny's song called My Song. And there was a picture of Johnny Ace in the middle with all of the people around him who did a cover song, <laughs> right? So there's a handful of people, you know, you can imagine like the stars and how those look in the 1950s with the note on the sign that said, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Public want My Song by Johnny Ace. Bad music and all. So that tells you what. The industry thought about it. <laughs> Screw you, Johnny Ace, in your regional hint. Mm-hmm. So six months after the re-release by Roby, the song still has legs. It's still doing pretty well in the charts, which six months today for a pop song, like in the current mm-hmm. pop pantheon is actually pretty big. In the 1950s, might as well have been a decade. Week to week, things changed. And uh, the fact that six months after the re-release... It still had legs. It's still doing well in the regional and national charts. I mean, that's really huge. So Roby's stoked. Johnny's stoked. The crew is stoked. They put a band together. They put them out on the roads. And they're kind of doing that sort of like first bit, right? Where they're out there doing one-night stands, secondary, tertiary markets. They do longer stints in Kansas City and then in Los Angeles, right? And sort of bigger cities. For those of the people listening that don't know, Kansas City, interestingly enough, is a huge blues town. Does anybody know why? No. No? So I learned this in college. It's one of my all-time favorite stories, and I will tell the story all the time. So one, it's equidistant, more or less, from New York and L.A. So if you think about the two big, I would even say Chicago almost, what would happen, the guys would go out on tour, and once they hit Kansas City, both east and west, it was like a logical stopping point Mm -hmm. for the tours because there's not much west of Kansas City until you hit Denver. And vice versa, right? And so they would get out there and they would have their per diems and they have their money and then they would get to Kansas City to go play shows and then they get stuck 
because they couldn't go any further. They would run out of money. They would run out of scratch <laughs> and they would end up like literally busting tables, washing dishes, doing all this stuff in the jazz clubs in Kansas City. And then of course, you got all these jazz cats in there doing what they do. They're stuck and it gets cooler and then it gets bigger and that was it, right? But it was because they couldn't get out of Kansas City. <laughs> That's what Kansas City blues is. That's, I'm stuck here. Right? That's exactly what it is. Hey, hey, Kansas City, right? I was there a couple of months ago and like they don't have a lot to talk about. And so they got to they gotta work on that one. <laughs> Sorry, I love you, Kansas City. You're actually a nice city. All right. <clears throat> so Roby... He's sharp, right? We know that. We've picked up on his his acumen, his skill set, his ability to manipulate uh, in his favor and sort of work work things. So he's out there saying, "Hey, we're not going to release another record in, by Johnny Ace until the right material is ready." He's slow playing it, right? He's saying, "Oh man, you know, we're going to work through it smartly," you know. So he wants to get this thing that played out. But he was just waiting for this record to play itself out. Did not expect this record to have six months uh, of playtime, right? But he's already sitting on his next hit, Cross My Heart by Johnny Ace, right? It was to be released as Duke Records 107, right? Which essentially is, I think, the the newest, the first release of the new iteration of, of Duke. Now, this is where things get fun. It has a similar song structure, both (laughs) melodically and rhyming to the first hit, right? They don't acknowledge it. They don't acknowledge my song's origin so long or anything, right? Now, this time, though, uh, oddly enough, I think it had to do with the partnership. Johnny was out, and the songwriting credit goes to David J. Mattis and Don Roby. Clearly, neither of them were putting pen to paper, but they decided to capitalize on it. So let's listen to Cross My Heart by Johnny Ace. I cross my heart And I hope to die If I should ever Ever make you cry Cause you're my own Darling, you're a part the best part about these songs is like you can hear 45 seconds and you're like I, I know Got what it, it is yeah. right yeah there's no gonna be there's not gonna be any like dramatic back end where it's like oh man that just that blindsided me <laughs> <laughs> someone answered the door the doorbell was ringing the whole time and finally someone opened the door <laughs> so that was Johnny Ace's Cross My Heart Duke 107 which is essentially the newest release on the new iteration of Don Roby's uh, Duke record slash Peacock, right? And so interesting things as we listen to that, what'd you guys hear on that track that was different and or interesting? Um, it sounded sloppy to me. Sloppy, like yeah. musically it sounded sloppy. Yeah, it sounded okay. like they just mm-hmm. kind of threw it together. Okay. Yeah, it does sound thrown together. Okay. Uh, like a first, second take kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to disagree with that. I think sonically though... It's better. Better, right? It sounds like the engineers and the... And like. Like they, it sounds like it was recorded, right? Like it wasn't just at the Y. Was that at ACA in Houston? Is that why? Just wait. This is where it gets interesting. So a couple of interesting pieces about this, right? So while we were listening to it, Seth noticed the horns, which had like a nice bit and then got a little bit weird. Uh, Casey noted noticed the vibes, right? I guess it was vibes had to be, mm-hmm. right? Didn't have much resonance the vibraphone would have. Yeah. But it sounded almost like a game of Plinko. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, they're playing with some very hard mallets. Yeah, and and not didn't necessarily sound in time. Sort of sounded like arrhythmic, right? Yeah, like if someone 
put a vibraphone in front of me and said it's in the key of A, I'd be like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, don't just stand there, play something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, is that good? <laughs> uh, the standout piece of this song that no one mentioned is the organ. Yeah. It's very churchy. Uh, and it's very prominent, super high in the mix, and then it comes back down on a little bit. You know, the previous song were very piano, right? And mm -hmm. uh, this one is very churchy organ, and this gets interesting as we move. So 1952, Roby and Mattis, they seem to be working. They've got a loose partnership. You know, they didn't have IM. There was no Slack. There was no Skype. So they're sitting there working on their own things independently, but they're not really talking about what the plan was. Roby had a plan. He was the boss. He wasn't necessarily letting Mattis know. This is mid-1952, right? So Mattis is, like I said, he's still working. He's still recording. He's still back in Memphis. And Ace and the uh, Beale Streeters are back in the WDI studio and they're tracking songs, right? So Mattis uh, seems to take this same song structure. They cut and paste and they say, boom, here we go. They record Cross My Heart. They, no, excuse me. The B-side is a song called Angel. Uh, and it was one of the two songs in the entire Johnny Ace catalog that he was permitted to have co-written. Now, what's interesting is that a song like Angel, you don't expect it to be a jump blues as a B-side like the other song was from the first release. Mattis had installed a Hammond organ uh, into the studio and asked John if he wanted to play on that record, right? Johnny says, sure, whatever. He plays a record. They cut it, start to finish, just like the last one, in and out, 15 minutes. Probably 15 minutes to rip off their rip-off song, 15 minutes to cut it, and they've got two new sides, a new hit record. Interestingly, both are ballads. So one of the things I want to talk about with the organ piece is uh, I've had this discussion, and you know, in the rock press, they always like to talk about experimentation and periods and like, well, you know, uh, this is, they were going through this psychedelic phase or, you know, the Beatles went to India and, you know, they decided to take the influence and the sounds of, and there is some level of that, but we all know that like mostly it's somebody was like, Hey man, check out this sitar. This sounds really fucking cool. And they sit there and they play the sitar all the time. And then they're like, well, I'm going to totally put this on the song. Is that, is that okay, guys? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, well, it's, it sounds new to them, you know. Right, 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 right. Like, you know, you get some new gear in the studio and you're stoked. You're like, hey, is it okay if I if I put this on the record? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And then 20 years later, people are like, well, in the seminal record that Seth West recorded, he was experimenting, trying to incorporate the sounds of the Peruvian throat singers. <laughs> and you can tell these trying to find a way to, no, motherfucker, he just found a new toy and it sounded rad. And all of a sudden you got Eddie Van Halen playing keyboards on jump, right? Like that's all it is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. This sounds cool. Let's do yeah. it. Right. Yeah, I can take my drill to my electric guitar and look what it does. Yeah, yeah, a guy from Anvil putting a fucking vibrator on his guitar. <laughs> yeah. Which I still think is a great idea. But <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of ink is spilled on that. And it's just as simple where uh, Mattis says, hey, man, I got this organ. You want to play that instead of the piano? Yeah, sure, cool. Right? Yeah, yeah I like that sound, right? It wasn't a play at the gospel market. It yeah. wasn't like this big strategic thing. Yeah. It was, right, right, right. play that. Yeah. The women at the funeral home are going to love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. It's exactly what it sounds like. So in this time frame at the studio, Mattis cuts approximately, the records are a little bit unclear on his sides, approximately 10 sides 
in different combos with the Beal Streeter. So he's essentially trying to do what he did the first round, which is, hey, I have this really great set of musicians, excluding BB King. Let me try and give different iterations thereof of these guys. Spend time. I don't know if he spent $1,500 again. Uh, who knows? But he's in there and he does this, right? So he claims that all of these 10 sides, and for those who don't listen, 10 sides, like that's 10 songs. A record has two sides. Just make sure that's perfectly clear for Two him. songs per record. Two songs per record for a seven inch. Bigger records can fit bigger songs. More more songs. More songs. Or bigger, bigger songs. Or bigger songs. Like In a God of the Vita was yeah. one, that was a big song. All right, so, so he's tracking these songs in Memphis, Madison's, and he sends the tapes down to Houston for Roby to be mastered. Uh, Roby says, okay, sure, whatever. The band makes their way back to Houston for whatever reasons. And without telling Mattis, they go and they essentially retrack everything in Houston at Bill Holford's ACA Studios, right? Audio Company of America, which sounds like a... Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It something. sounds like a cheesy hi-fi store in a mall. That's exactly what it sounds like, right? Yeah. So Bill's out there and he get these tracks and they record it, right? Like literally just weeks after they were recorded in Tennessee. Essentially rendering what Mattis did in Memphis, all these cuts as demos, mm -hmm. which should be perfectly prank. They probably were, right? Mm -hmm. But Mattis thought they were the final tracks, okay? He claimed that all the tracks that came out were what made it on the record. That they were, He recorded them in Memphis at WDI, and that was out there, right? While in Houston at the ACA, uh, they cut four Ace songs, four Bobby Blue Band songs, and six... Roscoe Gordon songs. And here's the kicker is that Bill Holford, as an actual engineer in recording studio, like he knew what he was doing. He kept logs and said, Hey guys, I got the logs. Like we actually track this. Mattis never said that. Okay. I, I concede that fact, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they didn't have proof of that in Tennessee. And to the point that we said when we first listened to the song is that the audio quality sounds much better. Sounds better than what they did at the WDI. So it makes sense that it was probably the Houston tracks, right? Holford was an engineer, not just a radio DJ and you know, in his free time, right? Apparently, um, there's eight mics on the band, Ampex 300 mono tape. Do you know that mm -hmm. one? Is that half inch? That's probably a quarter inch machine. Quarter inch machine? Mono quarter inch, probably. So one track? Yeah. Eight mics, probably mixed then down. mixed down to two, four? Mixed down to one. Mixed down to Live. one. It's probably recorded straight to mono. Yeah, no overdubs. Right. Yeah, Most there, likely, yeah. Yeah, no, there was no overdubs on that. We know that. I'm just curious. If they overdubbed, they would have had a second machine, most likely. They would have played along with the them. tape machine to Which, a second tape. Considering the history of these guys, I highly doubt that would no, be No, the they case. probably... That vibraphone part sounds like they didn't spend any time on it. <laughs> <laughs> Wish we could do that over, guys. But, uh, that's it. We got to get that vibraphone back to the music <laughs> shop. We can't afford to rent it for another hour. Uh, so uh, Holford actually claims, though, that Don Roby acted as a true producer. When this is, gets to be interesting, right? Because just based off the story that we've heard, he, that's not his world. But he's actually working in the studio, sitting in the back, you know, playing that Rick Rubin. He's coaxing the band. He's working through them. He's making the suggestions, even if it's non-musical. Mm -hmm. I know this is a non-musical musician. I've sat there and said, that part kind of stinks. Can you think maybe yeah. do it a little bit Listen, better? Listen, guys, everybody take one more shot. Let's do this again. Right, right, right. You got it, guys. Right? So you're acting as coach. And so he was doing that. So give him break, uh, credit. He was, he was acting as a producer. And what comes out of that is 
a demonstrably better record, better sound, and excluding the vibraphone part, hmm. a, a better song, right? And it sounds better musically and, and, and recording-wise. I'm starting to pull for Roby. You know, mm-hmm. a little bit. I'm starting to pull for him a little bit. Yeah, a little you know? bit. I mean, he sounds like a real shithead, probably, but he's making stuff happen. Yeah. yeah. So this is what's fun is that organ sound obviously is pretty clear. Now I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a B three. It's some ha- Hammond. It's probably iteration. some Hammond. Yo. Just so happened the same, or as Mattis claims, the same exact organ that they had in Bill Harford's studio in Houston. They had just brought in to the Memphis radio station. So he couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, just so happened. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe not. 